Welcome, 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 Content while edited by residents is not verified by hosts or speakers, and we are not content experts on these topics. The content provided by the podcast is not intended and should not construe as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. We attempt to avoid use of opinion, but all opinions are presented are our own and are not representative of employer. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy our podcast. Welcome back to the Vanderbilt Internal Medicine Podcast. Well, Tara, we're back at it. Back at it with another cardiology episode, actually. New year, new you, right? <laughs> Even though it's already February? That's right. Okay, sounds good. Well, today we are joined by... Leonard Chu, he's a, a second-year internal medicine resident here at Vanderbilt, and he has a very interesting case for us today. But before we get to that, Leonard, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Jared, Jared, first off, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to come and learn with you guys. I was born in Toronto, Canada, and I went to undergrad at Penn. Then I went to New York for my master's in medical school at Columbia. Came to Vanderbilt for a residency, and this spring... I'll be applying a fellowship in cardiology with an interest in heart failure. In my free time, I like to be active. I play on the Vanderbilt resident soccer team every week. Mm. Um, I love racket sports of any kind. I used to play a good amount of tennis and recently picked up pickleball. Tara, I'm looking at you. Yeah. And then on quieter nights, I like to play chess. Nice. You know. Yeah, I'm still waiting for Leonard to challenge me on the courts. I think he's scared. Honestly. You, know oh who, uh, you know who got a, a pickleball set for Christmas? This guy. Right oh, here. my God. So Jared. Well, Post-podcast. <laughs> yeah, tournament. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. What did you do your master's in? Um, I did it in public health and nutrition. Oh, nice. yeah. very cool. You're just telling everyone to stop their statin and... I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. Maybe not that far. Very cool. So, Leonard, thanks for that. So, what what are you going to talk to us about today? So, I, I wanted to come on the on the podcast and talk about cardiac amyloidosis. Um, mm. It's a pretty interesting disease. Previously, it was thought to be pretty rare, hard to diagnose, and and untreatable. And now, kind of with new emerging therapies and imaging modalities, this per- paradigm's like really challenged. I want to start before we begin to thank my mentor, Dr. Deepak Gupta, Dr. Lynn Panous, and Dr. Rebecca Hung for being so gracious with their time and expertise. They taught me a lot about cardiac amyloidosis, so I'm very grateful. And, you know, hopefully by the end of this podcast, we'll learn together that one, cardiac amyloidosis is not so rare, and certain forms of it are actually quite common. And two, it's a disease that can be recognized by the trained clinician. And finally, most importantly, it's a form of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction that has now new targeted therapies that can really improve outcomes for patients. Thank you, Leonard. This sounds awesome. Because we are internal medicine residents, you know we love to start out with cases to learn about topics, new topics. So do you have a case for us today by chance? Yeah, so let's start with a brief case. Um, We have a 65-year-old man with history of lumbar spinal stenosis, paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, a previous diagnosis of HEFPEF, EF of 60 to 65%, and he comes to clinic complaining that his irregular heartbeats that were previously intermittent have now become more persistent in the past couple months. He's also endorsed some shortness of breath for the past couple years to months to years, and he's also gained some, some weight. He's like five pounds above his dry weight lower extremity edema. He said that he was taking all his medications consistently, including his diuretic regimen, and he was seen by cardiology a couple months ago, 
when they switched him from Lasix 40 milligrams BID to Torsemide BID with a much better response. Uh, when he presented, he had a blood pressure of 100 over 50s, heart rates in the 90s in atrial fibrillation. His exam was notable for an estimated JVP of 14 cm above his right atrium, crackles at the base of his lungs, and mild abdominal distension and some lower extremity edema. His labs were notable for a BNANCP of 600, and his ECG showed poor R wave progression and normal voltage. He previously had a coronary evaluation two years ago that was minimal, 50% of the RCA and 30% of the first diag. His LVADP at the time was 20, and they got an echo. It showed an EF of 65%, had some increased wall thickness with small ventricular chambers in comparison to his atria. So suggestive of kind of an infiltrative process. Eventually, he gets some labs, including light chains, that show free light chains in the 600s in a CAPTA-LAMBA ratio of 0.001. Eventually, he gets an endomyocardial biopsy that shows amyloid. And when stained with Congo Red, the classic apple green birefringence. Wow. I remember that. Yeah. I think I hammered that into my brain for uh, yield step one. (laughs) So I think, Leonard, that's a great case so far. What it sounds like is you presented a person who seems like they're in a heart failure exacerbation. uh, And then you told us that has normal, a normal ischemic eval or very minimal coronary disease with a normal EF. And then some, some hints on his echo that kind of drove the diagnostic process. So before we go further, Leonard, do you think you could walk us through what cardiac amyloidosis is? Yeah. So, so there are two main types of cardiac amyloidosis, AL or light chain and ATTR or transthyridin cardiac amyloidosis. So I'll start with AL. So AL is a plasma cell dyscrasia. So if you remember back in <laughs> medical school and, and, and I try to but, forget medical school, Leonard. Let's be let's be honest. But I guess for the uh, for this podcast, I'll try to rack my brain. So, in our body, there are plasma cells that are produced in the bone marrow. These plasma cells create our antibodies, and these antibodies uh, are consistent of light chains and heavy chains. In AL amyloidosis, there's an overproduction of the light chains, and these light chains start to misfold and aggregate into amyloid light chain fibrils. And then these fibrils can deposit in many different organs of the body, including the heart, and this causes AL uh, amyloidosis. In ATTR, there's a precursor protein called transthyridin, and this protein actually, you know, is a, a carrier of things. It carries one of which is albumin, and it carries albumin in our in our blood. And transthyridin is produced in the liver. Uh, it's kind of like a four-leaf clover. It's a tetramer. And when there's a mutation or an abnormality in this tetramer, it starts to dissociate. And as you can imagine, this protein starts to re-aggregate and abnormally deposit in other organs of the body, like an AL. And the most symptomatic cases are in the heart, causing ATTR amyloidosis, or in the nerves. So I think it's, it's helpful to, to differentiate a subtypes of ATTR. There's two subtypes, one of which is a genetic variant called transthyridin amyloidosis variant. 
And this is essentially a disease that occurs when there's a single amino acid mutation or substitution. The most common in the U.S. is called the VAL122I mutation. Worldwide, it's the most common amyloid neuropathy is actually the VAL30MET mutation. But going on to the second type of ATTR, that's ATTR wild type cardiac amyloidosis. And it's actually the most common type of ATTR. It de- develops in older adults as kind of part of the natural aging process, and it's not due to a particular genetic mutation. Okay. Some of, some of my med school education is coming back to me. <laughs> so, Leonard, thank you for that. So it sounds like, you know, for a, a, a simple future pulmonologist such as myself, <laughs> this is a, so we would call it, it's an uh, infiltrative disease, and there's two main types. You have the AL amyloid which is from light chains that are depositing in cardiac tissue. And then we have ATTR, which is this malformed transthyretin protein that's produced from the liver that's depositing in the, in the cardiac tissue. Yeah. And it's leading to a similar presentation? Yeah. So I think we'll go, go into uh, the different types of presentations for AL and ATTR, but they have similar characteristics, but also distinct ones, which is important to go through so that you can help differentiate them. Excellent. I think it sounds like we're going to get to that part. You know, Leonard, thinking back on medical school, I feel like this was more of a rare disease than it seems like based on what you're saying and based on what I've seen in residency. Is this true? Is it more common than we think? Yeah. So, you know, I'll go through kind of the incidence and prevalence, but, you know, anecdotally, even even in residency, I've, I've seen half a dozen patients here at Vanderbilt with either ATTR or AL. And I think there, we actually shared a patient in the in the VA. I think you you were on night float, and you admitted a patient with ATTR amyloidosis to me. So it, it's definitely more common than people think. How common exactly is a great question, and it's pretty hard to estimate. But estimates place for AL to be around five thousand to seven thousand new cases every year in the U.S. And if you think about the definition by the FDA of a rare disease, which is affecting under 200,000 people in the U.S., AL is certainly a rare disease. But for ATTR, specifically for ATTR variant, estimates place the prevalence to be around 25,000 to 120,000 people in the U.S. The exact incidence and prevalence is hard to, it's really hard to determine but as I mentioned, the common variant is the VAL122I mutation. And actually, 3.5% of self-identified African Americans actually have, are actually carriers of this variant. And uh, unfortunately, due to healthcare inequities, the VAL122I mutation is likely underdiagnosed. Oftentimes, it's misdiagnosed as hypertensive heart disease. Going on to the statistics for ATTR wild type, Estimates are that there are over 200,000 people in the U.S. with this type of mutation, which is pretty considerable. There's also been a lot of studies that have shown that 13% of all men greater than 60 who are admitted to the hospital with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and also have an increased wall thickness will have concomitant ATTR wild-type amyloid. In addition, one in seven people coming in for severe aortic stenosis undergoing a TAVR will have ATTR wall type, according to one observational study. So certainly not a rare disease and actually quite common. 
Yeah, that is actually a lot more common than I thought. If this disease is, is much more common than you know we'd previously thought, what are some clues that we should be looking out for to think about the diagnosis of amyloid, of cardiac amyloid? Yeah. Apart so, from our general heart failure symptoms. That's a great question, Tara. So all patients with AL or ATTR can both have symptoms of heart failure and arrhythmias. This can obviously manifest as left or right-sided heart failure symptoms. So typical symptoms being shortness of breath, lower extremity edema, elevated JVP. These are typical heart failure exacerbation signs. But in terms of arrhythmias, this can manifest as you know heart block, atrial fibrillation or flutter or ventricular arrhythmias. And also these types of patients can have autonomic neuropathy, so patients can have orthostasis or constipation because of GI motility problems. And some of these more specific to amyloid, the arrhythmias and these autonomic dysfunction symptoms, are these in both AL and ATTR? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, these are symptoms that are common to AL and ATTR, but there's also some specific non-cardiac symptoms that can really help clue you in into one or the other. For AL in particular, um, you have symptoms like periorbital ecchymoses, or patients can sometimes have macroglossia or enlarged tongue. In ATTR, patients are actually associated with bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome, which is interesting. In fact, there was a study in the Cleveland Clinic that found around 1 in 10 patients undergoing carpal tunnel release surgery in older adults will actually have amyloid in their tissue, in their tenosynovial tissue. Some other symptoms can be patients that have ATTR also have lumbar spinal stenosis, which is interesting because, you know, as a VAPCP, you see so many patients with lower back pain or joint problems. When patients have that and also heart failure symptoms, you start to kind of piece things together and potentially start thinking about ATTR amyloid. And then finally, I I would show you guys a picture if I could, but there's a sign for ATTR patients called the Popeye sign, where patients just show up to your clinic with a tendon rupture, like a bicep tendon rupture. And apparently this, this rupture with if you take a picture of the patient's heart and they have a thickened heart and they come in with a bicep rupture, you made the diagnosis. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of crazy. Apparently, the the likelihood ratio for of Popeye's sign for ATTR amyloid is around thirty, which is insane. And then, as I mentioned, I think patients can also have hip and knee problems in ATTR patients. It is funny because I think a lot of these things are very common, like carpal tunnel, spinal stenosis hip joint pain, but then when it's all tied together, it can kind of put some alarms in the back of your head off of this. This could be an underlying diagnosis tying all these things together. Yeah, exactly. So moving on to, to ECG. So typically, you know, we're taught in medical school or in textbooks, at least, that the amyloid patients, because of the infiltrative nature of their disease, have a low voltage. Uh, but this is actually a very low sensitivity and even the specificity of this is not that high if you don't have LVH or left ventricular hypertrophy. So the absence of low voltage doesn't rule out amyloid. As, as we can see in, in our patient's case, they had a EKG with normal voltage. Okay. 
So we've talked about now when to suspect a diagnosis of cardiac amyloid. Why don't you talk us through some of the first steps in diagnosis? Maybe we can start with imaging, just because I know that's kind of a lot of people's first move is to order an echo on people. So That's probably my first, second, and third move, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so there's three non-invasive imaging modalities that are typically used for evaluating cardiac amyloid. The first is echo. The second is cardiac MR. And then finally, there's a nuclear SPECT imaging with pyrophosphate that is especially useful for diagnosing ATTR amyloid. So I'll go through that in order. Um, Generally, echo is most commonly the first step for patients with heart failure symptoms anyways, even when cardiac amyloid is suspected. So in, in terms of echo findings, the textbook pattern is the increased wall thickness, also relatively small ventricular size, maybe some biatrial enlargement, valvular thickening, um, some pericardial fusion. These are potential patterns that you could see. It's not necessarily the most common pattern that you'll see. You might see more subtle findings like just increased wall thickness or just atrial enlargement. Now, the, the, the specificity for diagnosis on echo, to be clear, you can't diagnose amyloid on echo, but the specificity for helping you lean towards a, a diagnosis of amyloid is enhanced with strain imaging. Typically, strain examines basically the heart shortening in systole, and in cardiac amyloid, the shortening at the apex is spared, and there's a pattern that people typically say when you put the left ventricle in a certain view. It's called the cherry on top pattern. I like that. That sounds nice. <laughs> yeah. I'll remember that. So the, the second type of modality is the cardiovascular magnetic resonance or CMR. And that's another modality that helps with evaluation of amyloid. And some characteristics, again, you showed increased wall thickness, small ventricular cavity size, similar to on echo. So the added value of cardiac MRI comes from tissue characterization through parametric mapping and gadolinium imaging. I won't get into the specifics of that, but again, it should be stressed that while echo and CMR findings can be highly suggestive of amyloid, these are not usually considered diagnostic tests. You need confirmatory testing, and for ATTR, it's with a PYP scan, and for AL amyloid, this requires a tissue biopsy. So going on to the third type of imaging, the PYP scan, this really has enabled non-invasive diagnosis for ATTR amyloid, which is kind of a game changer. You know, in medical school, again, you always remember, you know, tissue is the issue, you need a biopsy. But in this particular uh, type of amyloid, with the advent of PYP scanning, uh, it's actually not necessary. So... Very briefly, the PYP scan is just a bone-seeking radio tracer that is retained in the heart. And if amyloid is in the heart, then it kind of lights up. PYP scans are graded 0 to 3 according to visual score. And it basically compares the heart to rib uptake on planar imaging. And scores of 2 or 3 are consistent with ATTR amyloid. Cool. Wow. <laughs> Leonard, are, are you the <laughs> Leonard? Are you the number one order ordering provider for PYP scans? Because it sounds like you might be. That's that's pretty fantastic, though, that you could make a diagnosis without actually having to do a, a heart biopsy. Yeah, so that, that's pr- 
particular for ATTR. And yeah, so I guess if we have a patient who we suspect amyloid, we have imaging studies, maybe not the PYP scan, but we have some MR and echo uh, studies that are consistent with amyloid. What Talk us through kind of the steps in diagnosis and what the diagnostic criteria are. Yeah, for sure. So generally the diagnos- diagnostic approach proceeds with three steps. Step one is ordering monoclonal antibodies. So SPEP, UPEP, serum or urine immunofixation, and then serum kappa and lambda free light chains. And and these are all to maximize sensitivity uh, of the diagnosis. If you analyze the kappa lambda free light chains, and it's of an abnormal ratio, and you order all these to really maximize sensitivity. Now, if you have a positive monoclonal antibody that shows up, then this is actually leaning you towards AL diagnosis. So you move immediately towards the AL pathway, per se, and we move towards a tissue biopsy. It it should be stressed that if there is abnormal light chains, you have to immediately involve HEMONC, and they will start a workup for AL and also potentially start them on treatment as soon as they have that diagnosis. But it is uh, important to involve your hematology oncology colleagues. And again, they'll, they'll probably do a endomyocardiobiopsy. And if that is positive, then the AL diagnosis is made. If the biopsy is negative, then the AL cardiac amyloid diagnosis is unlikely, even with the elevated light chains. Now let's go through the pathway if the monoclonal antibodies or the kappa lambda light chains that you order are negative. Then you move towards step two. And now you're kind of leaning towards the ATTR pathway. So if light chains are negative, you actually go towards a PYP scan and start screening for ATTR if you have a high suspicion for cardiac amyloid. And again, like like we mentioned earlier, these scans have been pretty revolutionary depending on the ATTR patient because it can render an endomyocardial biopsy unnecessary. So for example, if you you have negative light chains you have a PYP scan that is positive, then the diagnosis for ATTR is made. You you don't need a a biopsy. And then finally, the last step is if an ATTR diagnosis is made, genetic testing is very important. All confirmed ATTR patients should get genetic testing and counseling for, for the patient and also their family because, like we were mentioning earlier, there's genetic forms of the ATTR. And it's important that family knows about that and, and potentially get started on treatment as well um, if, they're, if they're symptomatic. Now, if the PYP scan is negative, then cardiac amyloid is unlikely. Hmm. So it sounds like, as with all good medical diagnoses, we're starting with the least invasive lab, blood work, urine testing, kind of moving towards the more invasive to guide us towards our diagnosis. Exactly. Love that. Cost effective. Man, I gotta figure out who keeps canceling all my endomyocardial biopsies. Then, <laughs> Leonard, this has been great. So it sounds like you know we've covered the prevalence and epidemiology, the different types, how to diagnose them. But can you tell us more about once we've made a diagnosis, how do we start management for patients with cardiac amyloid? Yeah, happy to. So the mainstays of therapy include MRAs or aldosterone antagonists, spironolactone in bioavailable loop diuretics, especially in the setting of right heart failure. So torsamide or bumetanide over furosemide for these patients. There is actually no 
guideline-based recommendations for heart failure therapies, regardless of ejection fraction for these patients. So ACEs or ARBs or ARNIs or beta blockers, there's no recommendation for that. Wow. So specifically with cardiac amyloid heart failure patients, those therapies haven't been studied. So we don't know if they work, but are they usually on those types of medicines? Yeah. So the... There's a couple of medications that you, you should be wary of. Um, in particular, calcium channel blockers, especially the non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers like verapamil and uh, cardizim, these are contraindicated and should be avoided. Um, very interestingly, the calcium channel blockers actually bind pretty avidly to the amyloid fibrils, and it can actually lead to pretty high-degree heart block and shock. Wow. That's intense. I knew that thanks to Leonard. <laughs> Good thing <laughs> we're allergic. Rounds, truly, thanks to Le- Yeah, we're allergic to... To Dilton Verapamil anyway, so... <laughs> but uh, even more reason to, uh, to, to do that. What about other medicines like digoxin? Yeah, so, you know, digoxin can also bind to amyloid fibrils. Oh, and, what do you know? And, and it could lead to, like, localized digoxin toxicity, even when the, the normal levels in your serum are circulating, the toxicity in the heart might actually be really high. And so it should generally be avoided as well, but if needed, can be used only cautiously. What about our other heart failure medications, Leonard? What about the ACEs, the ARBs, the beta blockers? Our old friends. The yeah, old friends I know. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> taking care of these patients, cardiac amyloid patients, is pretty difficult. They have really low blood pressures because of their heart failure, also their concomitant autonomic dysfunction. So by nature of their infiltrative disease, they have really low and fixed stroke volumes, and they need their heart rate to maintain cardiac output. If we think back about physiology, if we remember cardiac output is equal to stroke volume multiplied by the heart rate. And if you have medications that block that heart rate, on a, on a patient that has a really fixed low stroke volume, then they don't have cardiac output at all. So beta blockers, especially the very high doses, should generally be avoided in cardiac amyloid patients. Speaking of arrhythmias, I know they are very common in cardiac amyloid patients. Will you tell us about treatment of, of these arrhythmias and anticoagulation, et cetera? Yeah. So you know, all, all these patients, regardless of their Chad Vask, should be anticoagulated. Um, wow. Regardless of Chad's Vask. Hmm. Yeah, and, and and screening for atrial fibrillation um, is important for these patients. Okay, so we we talked about some of the treatments for various manifestations of cardiac amyloid heart failure arrhythmias. What about the good stuff? The treatment of the cardiac amyloid in general. Yeah, tell us about the goods. We want to hear about that. We know about these little, you know old heart failure medicines, but what about these new treatments? The the ones I want to be prescribing on my own. (laughs) The ones that we'll be sending to you to help help prescribe. No, no, not me. Um, Especially, so I'll start with AL, AL cardiac amyloid. So as mentioned, the, the treatment should really involve a hematologist. And the traditional standard of care in AL amyloid doses has been high dose melphalan followed by stem cell transplant. And this is this type of treatment has been associated with long-lasting remission and high organ response rates. But this option, unfortunately, is only available for a minority of patients. 
It's been contraindicated for many reasons, and most cardiac amyloid patients who have AL aren't a candidate for high-dose melphalan and stem cell transplant because of their cardiac involvement. In 2008, there, this was kind of a game-changing year for, for AL because proteasome inhibitors like bortezomab started coming out, and this dramatically improved outcomes for patients with AL, resulting in hematologic response defined by like reduction in their serum-free light chains. And so in conjunction with bortezomab uh, came a regimen colloquially known as Cybor-D, which is a regimen that includes cyclophosphamide, bortezomab, and dexamethasone. And then finally, more recently, in July of 2021, there was a landmark trial called the Andromeda trial that that basically compared Cybor-D alone with daratumumab and Cybor-D. And there was a very good partial response or better in 78.5% of the patients. So this is really the, the new standard of care for AL patients, the daratumumab and Cybor-D. Wow. Another amazing trial name for cardiologist. Yeah, I feel like I'm shooting off into drug. space yeah. for the Andromeda trial. Mm-hmm. That's pretty fantastic. I think I've seen some of these patients on our uh, malignant heme service on, this, uh, on these treatments. That's cool that there's an intersection with cardiology. Uh, in that respect. How about, so we talked about AL amyloid. Are there any specific treatments for ATTR cardiac amyloid? Yeah. So this is the really exciting things for for me. Uh, You know, the major advances in ATTR cardiac amyloid really came from the ATTR ACT trial that was published in the New England in 2018. And it showed tofamidus to be a medication that can reduce mortality and morbidity compared to placebo, and also slow the decline of health-related quality of life for these patients. There's, there's a particular window of patients with ATTR cardiac amyloidosis that benefit from, these, from this drug, and we won't go into the specific inclusion and exclusion criteria for ATTR Act, but tamfaminus is generally more effective in earlier disease and not helpful in patients who have more advanced disease like NYH a class three patients. I think that the tefamidus drug is is kind of a game changer for these patients. In particular, the all-cause mortality hazard ratio was 0.7, and the number needed to treat was seven to eight patients to prevent one death in two and a half years. That's amazing. Yeah, it's that it's, is a game changer. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, I, I mean, for context, you know, SGLT2 inhibitors in the past two to three years have are been, miracle drugs. They, yep. they can, they can solve many, many diseases, world hunger, <laughs> poverty, <laughs> CKD, you name yeah, it. Yeah. For context, the emperor reduced trial, um, studying empagliflozin in the HEFRAF population, uh, with or without diabetes had a number needed to treat of 19 at 1.3 years. So, oh, so more than double. Yeah. Very cool. It's a famous, pretty cheap drug, right? Is it on the generic list? At oh man, Walmart? Good <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So unfortunately, it's the only therapy right now with proven mortality benefit for ATTR patients. But it's been really cost prohibitive for many. It's a drug that costs two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars a year, which is just insane. I guess, like, guys, I wish you could see Leonard talking about defamidus because he, man. 
Leonard's face his eyes lights lit up, up yeah. about Tefamidus. This is, he what, was just this showing is why us we did his, this podcast. His new Tefamidus tattoo <laughs> on his bicep. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, he's all, all about good outcomes. So, yeah, in addition to Tefamidus, there's some further treatments that are, that are coming out for ATTR that are coming down the pipeline. There's specific classes. So we have the stabilizers of the TTR tetramer, one of them being tefamidus. There's another drug called diflunisil that is also a stabilizer. But there's a separate class of TTR silencers that reduce the production of TTR, one of them being inotercin and the other being patisseran. And they basically target the hepatic synthesis of TTR either through RNA interference, as in patisseran, or antisense oligonucleotides, which is a mechanism of inotercin. Those are a lot of big words, I think, that went right over my head, but I'll trust you on that one, Leonard. (laughs) That sounds good. Leonard, if we don't really see our patients getting better on these treatments, what other options do we have? So It's it's pretty tough for these patients for, for the reasons I mentioned previously, but before cardiac amyloidosis was really a contraindication to heart transplant. But in the recent decade, with the advent of Cyborg-D for AL patients, studies have shown that in carefully selected AL patients and ATTR patients, they can have transplant outcomes similar to non-amyloid patients in what we call the new era, so in the past decade. Importantly, in 2018, there was a new allocation policy that basically provided a pathway for patients with cardiac amyloidosis to receive transplant. And currently, amyloid patients are listed status four on, on, tra- on the transplant allocation system. So status four is similar to patients who are often at home and might require IV inotropes. They're at home, but also might require some, some mechanical support like a VAD. Uh, to support their hearts. Nevertheless, I think cardiac amyloid patients are still disadvantaged in the system, and there's a potential need to prioritize these patients, especially AL patients. Amyloid patients have non-dilated ventricles, and thus you can't, they're not eligible for durable mechanical support, so they can't be bridged, what we call bridged to transplant. So there's definitely a need for uh, policy to potentially prioritize these patients with end-stage cardiac amyloidosis. Um, Leonard, this has been fantastic. I have learned so much to future, I mean, hopefully future lung doctors love to learn things about um, the heart. And it also is amazing hearing you talk about these things. I can tell you care a lot about this, this group of this population of patients. So why don't you give us some closing thoughts, pearls, just kind of a summary on what we talked about today? Yeah. So in closing, our, our patient from the beginning had AL cardiac amyloidosis with high light chains and was immediately started on Cyborg-D. A few takeaways from, from this talk, first being that, one, cardiac amyloidosis is not as rare as we previously thought. Second, I think that there are key, key exam findings that have high likelihood ratios that can help increase your suspicion for cardiac amyloidosis. And then third that there are new imaging modalities like PYP scans for ATTR patients that are non-invasive diagnostic options for patients. And then finally, most importantly, cardiac amyloidosis is treatable when diagnosed early. 
and we have tafambis now for ATTR, cardiac amyloidosis, and daratumumab and Cyborg-D for AL patients. <laughs> Jared and, and Tara, I, I just want to thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to learn about cardiac amyloid with you guys. It was a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun taking care of patients with you guys in the hospital, and I had an absolute blast. And we're going to see you on the pickleball courts, right? That's right. Yeah. You can't escape us. No, oh, they- you betcha. <laughs> Thank you so much, Leonard. This was fantastic. You know, I think all of us are going to be able to kind of go out and have a better understanding of this and definitely have a higher index of suspicion when we're seeing these patients in clinic and in the hospital. So, you know, thanks for doing so much work and in, in, uh, preparing this for us. Yeah, this is a lot of work to put together. So thank you. Awesome. Peace out. See you guys next week, month, year.